you want to turn with me to Psalm 90, we're going to read it before we pray. I'm going to read the whole of the psalm. We're going to preach up to verse 11. I think from 1 to 11, we have this deep, rich theology of God, his wrath and death. And then it goes on in 12 to 17 to speak of how we as his people should respond. And we'll look at that next week. Psalm 90 verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days of you have as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as I look at these words, I am daunted at the task of teaching it. To articulate your worth is an impossible task. To understand the extent of your wrath and to teach about death in a way that leaves us with hope God, it's a daunting task, and who can understand your mind yet without your spirit? So, Lord, I ask that your spirit would be with me and with our church, all of us here today as your body. Would you fill our hearts and minds with a clarity this morning? Would you cause us to ponder our mortality? Would we reflect on death? Would we reflect on our days on this earth 
Would we reflect on your eternal nature and your wrath? And Lord, let it be that as we ponder these things in our heart, that we would come to a place where we say amen and agree with you, Lord. These are heavy things. It's a humbling message for us to understand who you are, that we are worthy of your wrath, that we are worthy of death. Let us be humbled, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at Psalm 8, and it showed us how people will gaze upon God's creative work in this world in order to make us feel small. And David was there looking at the handiwork of God in the night sky, and he said, what is man that you are mindful of him? Well, we go a long way back to Moses now in Psalm 90, the oldest psalm that we have on record, and potentially what we've looked at is probably the oldest poem or song that history has ever given over to us. We look at today. We have it here. Isn't that incredible that we sit here with Moses' writing, him uh, articulating what he understands about God, his wrath, people, and death, his reflections of his life at the, towards the end of his life, so after he's written probably much of Genesis, Exodus, and the law following. And we have this letter, this prayer or song that would have comforted so many people Think of how many people have died over the last, it's hard to date back to when Moses was around, say 5,000 years, people will object. But anyway, however long, think about how many people have died and thought through these words. The open coffins or the body laying there as family sung, family sung this hymn and took comfort from the fact that there is a God who is eternal. Well, once again, we come to this place and we're going to reflect on death. We're going to look at God and be humbled. And it's so important that as Christians, we take the opportunity to be humbled. We, we decrease, as John the Baptist said, we decrease while Christ increases. And this is really a daily practice for each and every Christian. It's definitely a weekly practice as we come here to his word every Sunday to be humbled and Christ exalted. And this passage or this psalm will certainly do that. And in order to do that, we're going to look at death. Now, death in our day and age is something we maybe don't really take hold of too often or we want to push it aside or suppress it. We've changed the terms from someone died to they've passed away or they've gone to a better place. Or we add in jokes, they've kicked the bucket. Uh, we don't want to confront death in the real way that the scriptures confront death. Even to this day, many Christians will have a celebration service rather than a funeral, which I'm okay with. We want to celebrate the life they had. But when we look at the scriptures, there was a place for mourning the fact that death was in the world. If we go back to Jesus in John 11, when Lazarus has died and Jesus goes to the tomb, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he weeps. Jesus weeps for Lazarus, who's died. Why does he weep? He weeps for the fact that death is in the world. So yeah, we want to have a celebration service when someone has passed because God has saved them and they've had a 
a magnificent life of serving the Lord, maybe. But let us not forget that the scriptures also call us to mourn the fact that death even exists at all. The fact that death is present in our day and age, that, that every person who is here today will expire. The scriptures call us to mourn this, to lament, to grieve the fact that God actually created a world that didn't have death in it. That God created a world that was meant to be with him forever. So while we're here on this planet and we come face to face with death, we are called, yes, to celebrate the life that was, but also to mourn that life is fleeting. And this mortal body, this fleshly body, has to die in order for us to have a new resurrected body in heaven. Ecclesiastes 7 gives us a great picture of this when it says, better is the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness of face, the heart is made glad. It's a bleak scripture right there, but if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you find that with Solomon. He's a, he's a dark dude towards the end of his life. But what are, what are we saying in this passage? Why is the day of death better than birth, or the house of mourning better than feasting? Because it's not very often you go to the house of feasting and celebrating where people start thinking about their own mortality. And if you do, that's concerning, potentially. But when you come to the open coffin of a loved one and you're faced with death in front of you, or you head to the funeral home to plan the funeral service, then you're, you're confronted with the fact that you too are going to expire. You two are going to die. In the funeral service this week, the opening lines were a call and it says, as, as a traditional Anglican, I'm not an Anglican, but as a traditional Anglican funeral, it says that we would recall our own mortality and know that we are going to face death and judgment. That was one of the opening lines of the funeral. To recall our, because the person who has died Funeral service doesn't mean much to them anymore. It's for us. It's for us to ponder our own existence. So as we read Psalm 90, whether it was written at the time of a death, someone passing away, or whether Moses was simply thinking about his own death coming, he starts to think about the questions of, The real questions of life. What am I doing with these 70 years? What am I doing with these 80 years? Have I numbered my days? And he seeks to ask God the questions of his heart. And I believe when we come face to face with dead, death outside of every funeral home, whether it's Christian or non-Christian funeral, God's holding up signs saying, life is brief, death is coming, how are you walking? Will you walk wisely? Life is brief, brief, death is coming, and will you walk wisely? We have an opportunity in this, uh, this psalm to think about how sin 
or to grieve that sin has brought about death in this world, but also that it points us to a gracious, gracious God who sends Jesus as the defeater of death. So let's unpack it, work through it, working through it verse by verse as best we can. As David last week in Psalm 8 started with that personal title, and I want to just recall that title, Lord our Lord. Yahweh, which is that sacred name of God, Yahweh our Lord. We see that personal interaction that David had with God and is ours to have with God today. We as God's people, his church, his, his bride that Christ has redeemed, we have that invitation to come to God in a personal connection and say, you are our Lord. Even better, you are our Father. And as we come to think about these deep questions of life or the end of life, we come to a loving Father who hears us. So let's remember that as we ask these questions of our Lord, we're asking our Father these questions, as if he's sitting there with us, instructing us as his children. And Moses starts his psalm, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. We're thinking of Israel when we think of the our. Moses is writing on behalf of the Israelites. Maybe he is up on Mount Sinai. I like to think that he's probably in the tabernacle by this point, the tent of meeting, and he's there. He's, he's at the end of his life. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure as you, you read a psalm like this, it seems to be something you would write near the end of your life, not when you're mid-20s. And he's there reflecting on his life, and he says, you, Lord, have been our dwelling place for all generations, Israel, for all generations, even in the midst of suffering and trial and torment, even in the midst of, of Abraham being called out of his homeland into a foreign land to sojourn there. And Moses is reflecting on Israel's history and says, God, you have been our dwelling place. Whether we are in the land of Canaan, whether we are at Mount Sinai, whether we're in Egypt, whether we're in a foreign land or the promised land, you, Lord, have been our dwelling place. Moses gets to see into the promised land but never actually gets to go into it. But he knows that the dwelling place that is most important is to be with God. So he recalls that the dwelling place, it doesn't matter where our situation is at the moment, but our dwelling place is with God. It reminds us that God is always present, that we can't run from him. It points us to that other psalm of David that says, where can I go from you, God? I can go to the highest mountain, you are still there, or to the depths of the sea, and you are there. Where can I run from you? To say that God is our dwelling place is to say that there is nowhere we can go on this earth that God is not. He's everywhere which when we think about makes Israel's sin in the wilderness so much worse. Israel there in the wilderness been driven out of Egypt, been taken out of Egypt, delivered from slavery, and, and now they're dwelling next to the mountain and Moses is receiving instruction from the Lord and they decide to make a calf, a golden calf to worship in the midst of God's dwelling, 
In the midst of God's presence, they decide to worship a mute idol. And we see this outrageous sin of them going, well, God isn't here anymore, or Moses has gone and left us. We'll make our own God. See, when we look at a phrase like, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, from all generations, we can look at it from Israel's perspective, but also the pagans' perspective. Just because it's a pagan nation, just because you're in Egypt or Babylon or maybe a a country uh, that doesn't worship God in our day, just because you're there doesn't mean you're outside of God's dwelling. God's there. God is present. But Moses takes us a little deeper. Moses is, yes, talking about God's, uh, God's everywhere nature, the fact that he is everywhere all at once and doesn't, is, is, and doesn't separate himself. He doesn't just dwell in heaven and not on earth. He's everywhere all at once. But it's also the choice of making God the dwelling place or rather God choosing us to make him his dwelling place. God chose Israel and made them his people and God chose his church and makes them his people. But the point is that our relationship with God never changes. You may be faithless. He's always faithful, is what it says in Timothy. What we see as we continue to unpack, is that, unpack this psalm is that Moses is deeply theological in this psalm. This is not just a psalm that is like lighthearted and easy to get around. Every line almost is pointing to another characteristic of God's nature whether it's his wrath or anger, whether it's his eternal nature or his creative power, it is all about doctrine. We've learned about doctrine before. It's sets of beliefs. What do we believe about God? And as we've said before, it is important for all Christians to grow in our doctrine. We want every Christian to be mature in their knowledge of who God is and his salvation plan through Christ. So as we unpack this, we're unpacking doctrine, the doctrine of God. And the doctrine of God is an everlasting, never-ending study. So first we see that God is the faithful one and he is our dwelling. And when we're dwelling with him, we know we have security there. Then it goes, before the mountains were brought forth. And we're now learning more about this God. Who is this God? Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting You are God. If we think about creation, these giant mountains, we don't really have any in Australia, but if we look around the world at Mount Everest or the Andes Mountains, if we think about these places, how much have they seen? How long have they been there for? How many millenniums have they seen through and different groups of people that have come and settled maybe in and around them, the cultures that have changed? And Moses compares God to them and says, you were there before them. Before you brought them forth, before you created them, you saw this world when it was nothing, when it was darkness or just you. It's hard to even grasp what that was like. When God was the only thing, person there, before the mountains were created, you preceded them. Or ever you would form the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
See, our dwelling place, although we are created in the physical creation of this world, our dwelling place is not physical. Our dwelling place is God, who is spiritual, who was before all things. We see Moses building this picture for us to ponder the eternal nature of God. God is eternal. He is not created. That's a basic Christian belief. And Moses is saying, ponder that. Think about it. Think about the fact that God has always been there. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You have always been God. Moses first shows us how different we are to God by saying that God precedes the mountains and the earth. And all the way through this psalm, there's this great comparison going on. God and humans. God is eternal. God is the creator. Humans are finite and created. And the very next verse, in verse 3, makes this deep comparison from the everlasting God who was there before the mountains, before the earth was formed. He then says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Is that not a deeply humbling set of verses? As we think of this first verse that says, you have been our dwelling place from all generation. This infinite God, this eternal God is our dwelling place who has known all things before the mountains. He's everlasting. He's eternal. And now it goes, and he is interested in the finite creation of man. You return man to dust and say, return, O man. At the sound of God's voice, people were created from dust. And once again, as soon as he speaks, we will expire and return to dust. It says elsewhere in the Psalms, and the Psalms we could learn pretty much all our theology from as we read them, that God has numbered our days. He's fixed the end in place. What Moses is saying is we aren't like God. Yes, we're made in his likeness. Let's not get confused there. We've got some similarities. We are there to bear his image in our creative, loving, uh, able to show compassion, those sorts of things, natures. We have a will and the desires, but we're not like God. We can't get mixed up in that heretical teaching that says whatever Christ did, you can do because we are humans and Christ was human, therefore we're exactly the same. We aren't like God. God is holy, utterly unique. There's nothing like God. There's nothing to compare him to. As one preacher said once, once, what is more like God, an angel or bacteria in the toilet? And he says, neither of them. Neither of them are like God. God is utterly unique. You can't compare him to the angels because he's not like the angels. He continues on to think about this eternal nature of God by stating in verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Think of all that has taken place in the last thousand years. I can't even comprehend it. Wars, 
terrorist attacks. We're in the middle of a pandemic. How many pandemics have taken place in the last thousand years? Empires rising and falling. They're the big scale things. What about the small, smaller family unit? Children being born. Family sorrow, family happiness. How many people have died in the last thousand years? There's not one person that was alive, that is alive today that was alive back then, a thousand years ago. Not even close. And yet, a thousand years for God in his sight is yesterday. This is the bigness of God that we're trying to comprehend here, that if he is so, because he is so eternal, a thousand years is nothing. It's like a watch in the night. You ever done night shift? When you do night shift, it feels like it goes forever, but it's, it's over in a moment. And that's what they're saying. It's like he's just blinked and it's gone. The thousand years is very small to God. The great comparison is when you're a child. Years feel like they go forever. Schooling felt like it went for absolute ever, and the school terms felt like they go forever. I remember when I was 20 and I met Grace's grandparents. They were missionaries around the world, and they would speak in 10 or 20-year lots. And I was like, I'm only 20. I've only had one of those. And they would be like, we spent 20 years here and 20 years in ministry here, and then we spent 20 years down in Kayama. And I'm like, 20 years? 20 years had become a smaller number to them. I think now I think of time in five-year lots and five years seems like a pretty short time these days. For God, who is eternal, he thinks of the world in a thousand-year lots. It gives us this picture of how big he is. It gives us a comfort but as well. But if God is eternal and a thousand years is like yesterday and we dwell in this God, why do we worry about tomorrow? The eternal reality of God humbles us to obedience, to trust, to know that tomorrow, the next 10 years or the next 20 years, it's going to be okay. He's dealt with thousands upon thousands. He's been through every pagan empire that has raised up and looks like it's going to destroy everything. He's been through every pandemic that has taken lives. And he's okay. He's got it. He's in control. We look at our 70 or 80 years, however long we've got, maybe if we're lucky, 90 or 100, and we worry. And we freak out about things. But if we look at God and take those moments to ponder this reality that a thousand years for him is like a day or, or as yesterday, and he is who we dwell in, that gives us great comfort. Gives it, com- it gives us comfort for the future, for tomorrow. It gives us comfort, comfort for our children's future. Whatever comes our way, God has this. He's got it. But verse 5 reminds us of his extraordinary power, that you sweep them away, you sweep people away with a flood. We're called to Genesis 6 
as we think Moses is likely the person who wrote out Genesis, was given the revelation from God to write the history of the creation order, the sin and fall of man, and then Abraham's uh, uh, beginnings. So we can imagine as Moses wrote out Genesis 6, the story of Noah and the flood, he recalls this image of God just wiping out the wickedness of the world in one flood and sparing one family. We're now drawn to the strength of God. And he's going to turn this a bit later in verse 7 into the strength of God in his wrath and anger against sin. We can take comfort in the fact that God has this under control, but in God having things under control means he wipes out wickedness. He deals with sin in the world. And before Christ, he dealt with sin by wiping them out with a flood. And Moses recalls and says, humans are wiped out with a flood. They are like a dream. They are here for one moment and then gone. When you think about a dream, you wake up and you can slightly remember bits and pieces. And then as it, the day goes on, it sort of disappears. Our life is compared to a dream. Our, our life is then compared to like the grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it is renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. When you think about the grass outside and the hot sun in summer that browns it, makes it brown, but then the dew at night brings back life to it. Saying our life is like that. We should be humbled in the fact that we, in the end, don't have much control over whether we live or die. We can choose to do things that are safer rather than take more risks. But in the end, even our risks are in, the control, in, in God's control. And if he chooses for us to live, he, he allows us to live on and saves us from our foolishness or folly. God, in his extraordinary power, deals with humans because they are wicked and sinful. He sweeps them away off a flood. They're like a dream. They're forgotten. Who remembers many people from a thousand years ago? Do you know your ancestor from a thousand years ago? And if you do, please don't tell me. It's always that one person, right, that knows. Trying to make a point here. But no one's going to remember us in a thousand years. I don't believe that in a thousand years, Hamo South Hall is going to have a plaque that says Gospel Church. I don't think they're going to remember us. Now we get to this infinite God, this holy God, this powerful God, and his wrath and anger. A hard topic to really understand and talk about that God can be both loving but angry. Yes, God is angry. That's right. That's what it says in the, the scriptures and have wrath ready to pour out. But we can't understand the weight and the depth of his love until we really understand his wrath and anger. So in verse 7, we see Moses bring it to his wrath and anger. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. So we see 
The flood brought the wickedness of, of, of this society. We see in that Genesis 6 that every inclination of the human heart was evil. That's an incredibly uh, deep statement to make about the whole of humanity. And God wipes them away off a flood in his anger. And Moses says, it is in his anger that our day is brought to an end. Have you ever pondered the fact that Jesus came to save us, yet we still die? We still die. We're not, we're not saved from, we're not, we're not spared from death. The promise is that we will rise from death. We'll be resurrected. We still face death. And the reason being is because this world, our body, our flesh has a curse upon it. We can't take this body to heaven. This, this body no more belongs in Eden anymore. There was a flaming sword set between us and the garden, and I believe the garden is destroyed from what it says in Scripture. So this body still has to die. But the promise is, as Christ defeated death, we too will rise with him. So when we look at verse 7, it says, We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. We still face this death. Death is still very present in this world, and it is just and right, because this world has turned against God's good design. See, death here reminds us that this world's not right. Every time we go to a funeral, every time a loved one dies, Every time we're faced with our own mortality, we are reminded that there's something wrong with this world. And Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then it goes on to say in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. So death is in the world only because of sin. And they don't make sense without one another. Why else would death be in the world? We can't just accept the fact that oh, everything dies for no reason at all. There's a reason behind it. And the reason is that there's punishment for our rebellion. There's punishment for our sin. God is angry that his holiness has been profaned among the nations. God has wrath towards us being in his dwelling place and worshipping other gods. We see that in Israel's picture. And yes, we don't worship mute idols anymore, but we worship enough in our life. And God is angry towards those things. Yet there's hope. Moses is the foreshadow. He's pointing towards Christ, right? Moses is the one who delivers Israel out of Egypt as Christ will deliver up or has delivered us through sin. We are enslaved to sin. Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians. And we see that Christ is our hope. He's the one who tastes death for us. He goes to death that he didn't deserve. He faced it. And the, the great theological question is, who killed God? Uh, sorry, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? God did. God poured his wrath out on Jesus. The Romans didn't, and the Jews certainly didn't. It was at God's exact time. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that the Jews didn't want to kill Jesus at that time. 
They tried to plan it away from the Passover, but God's like, nah, this is when you're going to do it. Because this is my time. Because Jesus is going to be the final Passover lamb. We see this incredible plan of God from the very beginning of Genesis 3, where God says, Eve, your descendant, your son will strike the serpent's head. And it follows all the way on to the day when Christ died on the cross. God was the one who poured out his wrath and anger on Jesus. And he's the one that faced death and resurrects from death so that we too will resurrect from death. Verse 8 reminds us that everything is seen before God. You'll set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. God, God doesn't just see our actions. There's no secrets from him. He's all-knowing. Our thoughts, he knows our secret intentions that we probably don't even know. Our intentions for what we're doing and the reason we're doing things. Which is why, in his good purpose, so that we may know his glorious grace, he put Christ before us as our great hope. It's not just about our actions. It's about our heart as well. And we needed someone who had good intentions and a pure heart and the right motivation, and his name is Jesus. He continues to build weight on God's wrath and say that for all our days passed away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. If it weren't for Christ, we would have no hope. Every day would be lived under the weight of knowing that punishment awaits us. Wrath, wrath is ready. That's pretty much how the Israelites lived. If you look at the Israelites, they lived waiting for more punishment. Whether it was coming through the next army or the exile that was coming, or whether they got banned from the promised land again, because they were always unable to do what God called for them to do. Israel is our great example that no matter how many sights or sounds or powerful miracles we see, we still cannot obey until we have a new heart. And the only way we have a new heart is through Jesus, giving us his Holy Spirit. So all our days pass away under your wrath. There's toil and trouble in this life. We will suffer, we'll struggle, and it's all under the curse of sin. But our hope is that we don't live in the day of Israel. We live in the day of Christ. We live under the new covenant. We live in a covenant that says uh, it's by my works and my works only. We live in the covenant of grace, not under the covenant of what we have to do in order to be saved. So when we look at this phrase, all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. For us, we have Christ that steps into that for us. His life was brought to an end for our sake. We won't perish under the wrath because Christ perished under God's wrath. And the life that lives in this place for everyone else who's not a Christian, lives in verse 9. 
for all our days pass away under your wrath. The unbelievers in this world will pass away under God's wrath. Their years will be brought to an end like a sigh, like it's meaningless, like life has meant nothing. The only life that is worth anything is a life that has dwelt with God from the beginning, from from the beginning of verse 1. Is the life that has made God our dwelling place. Moses doesn't want to pull any punches here. And in verse 10, he really lays on the, verse 10, oh yeah, just verse 10, he lays on how short our life is. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Simply put, life is short compared to the one who sees a thousand years like, a, like yesterday. For many of us, we haven't come face to face with death. Maybe, maybe it's not until we get a bit older that we realize death is coming to us. But Moses wants us to understand now, whatever age we're at, that our life is limited. At 70 or 80, maybe with our modern world, we can live beyond 80. But for those in his day, 80 was pretty much their limit. And the reminder is that even with Christ, our mortal body is going to end. So what is our life going to be about? He says at the rest of verse 10, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Yes, we'll face suffering and it's hard work. We work hard in this life. And that is what God calls for us to do. The whole of Proverbs is is there filled with what it means to be a hard worker. In whatever we do for the glory of God, But he wants us to remember that our time is short and we should use it as best we can. And he ends verse 11, this section, before he goes on to apply it to our lives, with who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This is an incredible question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's like he was pointing us to the Christian. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The Christian does. The believer in Jesus. Jesus demonstrated that. He considered the power of God's anger. He considered his wrath and the fear of him because he went and faced his wrath and anger. The Christian is the one who looks at God and sees their need for new life, sees their need for salvation. Otherwise, they're going to face this anger and wrath. The Christian is the one who is come to a realistic fear of God. And Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding is to fear God. And it points us really back to the start of all this stuff that God has existed before the mountains, before the earth, that he is everlasting, that he sees a thousand years like yesterday. And it's saying to us, think about this God. Understand who he is. And we have rebelled from him. He's worthy to pour out his anger and wrath on us. 
So who has considered his anger and wrath according to the fear of him? It's the Christian. The Christian has considered this. The Christian has realized they're in need of a savior. The Christian has had their blind eyes open to the fact that God alone is worthy of praise. And God alone is worthy to be a dwelling place. And the Christian considers the anger and the wrath and says, where is salvation? And then we get pointed to Christ. Christ Jesus is our salvation. The question we must ask as Christians, as believers, as we think about the theology of God or the doctrine of God, as we unpack who God is, is do you believe God's wrath is worthy? Because there's a great many Christians that don't believe God's wrath is right and will do whatever they can, whatever they can to try and paint God in this passive, weak, lovey-dovey God. Yet without God's wrath and understanding God's wrath, his grace is meaningless to us. There's no point in Christ dying. So as we look at a passage like this and we think about our, how our life is brought to an end by his wrath, as we think about our friends who we may go, they're all right people. They seem all right. They, they, they may even seem like good people. But a good person is one who acknowledges their creator. So as a Christian, do you believe God's wrath is worthy? Are we worthy of God's wrath? Because the one who fears him sees his glory and his might and says he is worthy to punish. They see his glory and might and say he is worthy to punish those who do not turn to him. Death is a worthy punishment for those who do not repent and believe in God. And as Christians, we must wrestle with these big things of death being the punishment of sin, wrath of God coming upon those who aren't repentant, the wrath of God that came upon Christ. We must wrestle deeply with them. And as we look to next week, it gives us how we ought to live. In verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The response is that we will use our days wisely in wisdom. And wisdom says to fear this Lord. Fear in a way that says you are God. Fear in a way that says I repent. Fear in a way that says I will serve you and you only. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And God, what grace it is that you have shown us, that you have opened our eyes. Lord, we could not see without your spirit first bringing new creation to us, bringing new birth. Lord, as Ezekiel said, we needed our heart of stone driven out and a heart of flesh put in. Lord, we see you today because you allow us to see you because you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive. Father, as we ponder your nature, your attributes, 
as we long to know you more, as we try to grasp your holiness, will we come to see that a turning from you is the greatest evil that there could be? A rejection of your laws and your statutes, a rejection of your love is the greatest evil that there could be. And everything else, every other evil, is a ripple effect of the fact that we don't have you, Lord, as our God. Father, help us to understand your wrath, your might. Help us to comprehend death. Help us to ponder these realities. Yet, Lord, let us always put Christ in the midst of our pondering as he is our great saviour and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.